if you want solutions, you must focus your mind. Introducing your host, Mason Hargrave. Today we are joined by Eric Ramos, uh, who is a marine scientist and conservationist um, at CUNY, Hunter College. That's right. Um, I've been at the lab of Diana Reese at Hunter College and my getting my doctorate at the CUNY Graduate Center. Beautiful. Oh, those are two different institutions? Yeah. So the CUNY is a funny system. There's like lots of satellite schools. Um, but what's cool about it is that when I went to school at the Graduate Center, I could go to classes in all the different schools. So it's nice because nice. you can take advantage of like the huge school system. So I took some stuff at Brooklyn, some stuff at the Graduate Center. So it's pretty cool. That's a nice flexibility to have. And of course, yeah. you also spent a lot of your time here at the Rockefeller University. Yeah, uh, for the past few years, we've been working collaboratively between my lab and um, and Marcelo Magnasco's lab, and I've been working here with Marcelo for several years on and off on various projects. And of course, uh, Marcelo was our last guest here on the podcast, and Marcelo said that you were one of the best naturalists he's ever met. <coughs> Excuse me, which is part of why you're here today is to is to uh, I appreciate kind of that. talk about that. That side of your life, so you're kind of a marine mammal extraordinaire. Uh, is, is that would that be fair to say? I mean, I think um, I would say I kind of dedicate my whole life to understanding animals, um, and a lot of that involves being in nature and paying really close attention to them. <coughs> and <coughs> gosh, excuse me, it lends itself to uh, like marine mammal science well because I like to understand animals and I like to try to protect them. Um, and that takes like a lot of actually just like watching and observing and learning what they are on their own terms. Yep. And yeah, so that's what I love about my field. And yeah, I try to do is I do a lot of different work in marine mammal science because all, all different species excite me. Got it. Beautiful. Um, so it's, so what right now you're focused on dolphins mainly. If I understand correctly, a lot of your work has to do with flying drones around uh, the Caribbean in order to find uh, and track dolphins. Correct. So, um, so yeah. how is it that at you know you're a young age you skewed a day job where you spend most of your time in the <laughs> on a boat in the Caribbean? Uh, well, you start <laughs> off by uh, deciding to abandon all your attachments where you are and go live on little islands um, in the middle of nowhere, uh, and that's what I did about ten years ago. I started working in Belize on Turnif Atoll, uh, where I studied population of bottlenose dolphins. Um, and I went from living in Brooklyn and being like a Brooklyn person, I would say, like a city person. That's a uh, huge transition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I went from being a city person to living on a remote uh, atoll, an oceanic atoll out um, 50 kilometers from the coast of Belize and on a little island the furthest west and furthest facing you could go towards the ocean as you can, a little strip of mangrove key called uh, Blackbird Key. Yep. Um, and that's where I spent on and off, uh, I'd say four years, about half the year there. Um, and then I've been back, you know, over the years for a few months a year, um, doing research on marine mammals there. Most of my work involved the coastal bottlenose dolphin population at Turnef and using drones to study their behavior by flying over them and seeing what they're doing um and it's you know we're using drone drones for a lot of things these these days photogrammetry really like fine scale behavioral work what's photogrammetry 
If, so, we're, if we're going to use the word, I have a rule that if we use buzzwords, we have to we have to explain them. So what's photogrammetry? Correct. Yeah, I forget what buzzwords, what to whom. It's um, always so hard to tell. Yeah. Luck, luckily, since I'm not quite in your field, I'm I, I have I'm a bit more attuned to this than I was with Marcelo. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so we use so photogrammetry is using scaled photos to measure things, and in the wild, that's really important because if you can measure the size of an animal and characterize its body condition you can know a lot about it and how our populations are doing so this is the famed reddit banana for scale banana for scale tell <laughs> me about that one not- <laughs> in, in, on reddit on reddit a lot of the time if they'll, you post an image and people want to know how big it is they say please put a banana for scale correct or they say banana for scale so uh, is our redditors actually doing a little bit of photogrammetry uh, almost, except like that banana, you'd want it to be like a quarter or something. You want to be standard. How do you know your banana's the right. same? <laughs> and this is a common Reddit complaint, in fact. It's like, oh, you just got a small banana, you know? <laughs> yeah, so with a big animal like a whale, um, you know, or a manatee, the things you want to do with it is, is get images from above. And basically, you just need standardized images that you can scale correctly. But that's actually really hard when you're flying over ocean and water um and you need like certain kinds of sensors your distance is changing the whole time exactly so it takes a little bit of addition of uh, lidar sensors onto a drone so you need uh you need like small laser altimeters that give you like precision altitude to scale that and so drones are really big for that now when we started it was it was literally just to be like can we see these animals better than we can see them from the boat. And the first time we flew the drone up, I was we were all like, oh, wow, yeah, we can actually see what they're doing now. Cause you go from, you know, like I spent many years looking off of a boat to sample animal behavior just and, by eye. And, and you know, you, you're bouncing off from like the angle of ref- reflection where you're not actually getting full optical penetration into, yeah. you know, you, you know, for, for the, for the listeners at home, depending on the angle you look at water, you can see more or less through it. So if you, if you see, if you're like 90 degrees perpendicular, you can see really easily. But if you're, if you're on a boat and you're looking off into the distance, your region of, of view is really, um, really, you know, <laughs> not great. And also most of these animals, you have to remember they barely come up to the surface right so they might come up every 30 seconds or a minute or every few minutes so essentially from the boat you're really just looking for the fin the dorsal fin or their back oh wow that comes up when they take a breath otherwise you do not see what they're doing and so the drone literally went from us being like every couple minutes there they are there they are there they are to having continuous streams of footage of everything they were doing Partially because where we work in Belize, the water is really clear and it's like a meter or two meters deep. So you can just see right through the water column and see what the animals are doing while they're right. underwater. Right. And this is actually a really important point, which is that th- in Belize, uh, the the uh, t- terrain, if it as it were, is actually really unique to that area. And the dolphins have, as, you, as I think we've discussed before, have come up with some pretty interesting behavioral adaptations yeah. to living in that environment. So could you take us through what it's like to be in the Belizean a you know ocean environment um in kind of where you work what that what that terrain looks like what types of creatures you run into while you're there and then what type of behavior adaptations we can take those one at a time and mm-hmm. i can chop that up a little bit more but first can you kind of like set the ter- landscape sure. we, we you know i i, I take a plot flight to belize 
Uh, first of all, let's let's talk about that process. How do you get there? Is it is it just can you just can you just can I just book a commercial plane to go to Belize? Yeah, and Belize is a super popular tourist destination. To honestly, to go to a lot of the same places I would do research. Mm -hmm. Um, like they go, there's a lot of beautiful, pristine reef, um, and forests, and just a lot of nature and animals that and and outdoor activities and it's beautiful. So it's a tourism is really big to the country. Yep. Um, so flying there is easy. Um, and, but where I worked was not quite easy. Um, you fly there and then get a car to the dock and then drive an hour and a half out from the coast of Belize to turn a fat hole. So we'd cross through the shallow lagoon out of Belize city. Um, it's a low elevation city. They're not that big. Um, you head out about 15, 20 kilometers, and then you pass the coral reef system, the barrier reef, the Mesoamerican barrier reef system, which is the biggest barrier reef system in the hemisphere. And it extends down across, down the Yucatan, down to Guatemala. Big part of it's in Belize. We cross through that channel into the open Caribbean Sea. And then it's like dark, light blue water turns into dark blue water. And off in the distance, you can start to see mangrove keys and islands, and that's Turniff Atoll. It's a big oceanic atoll, which means it's a bunch of mangrove key islands, a bunch of islands that enclose a shallow lagoon. What does that mean to be a mangrove key island? So mangroves are uh, plants are like highly saltwater tolerant plants, and they're really one of the most important habitats that grow coastally in tropics and subtropics. Mm -hmm. And so mangroves grow on the edges of islands and they can even start their own islands because they can survive in really highly saline water and they will plant roots down in shallow waters. And eventually when they cluster, they will create an island. And so a lot of the islands in Belize are created on top of like limestone platforms, but the mangrove keys created the islands from enough aggregation of mangroves and collection of sand. These oh mangroves are actually create the islands. So that is Turnif Atoll is hundreds of mangrove keys that enclose a shallow lagoon. Many of them are actually just made of mangroves. So there's nowhere to walk except when there's enough sand to build up and when enough of those species build up like a terrestrial platform. Wow. Wait, yeah. I had no clue about this. That's so, that's ridiculously cool. Living in places like that, you like I didn't know much about mangroves before either until I had to travel through them every single day. And it was just shocking to me that there were like these huge forests that grow in the salt water. And, and, and that's what the lagoon is. The lagoon is this little, right? It's this little like salt water marsh that, is that right? Am I getting this? What's I big? Don't... You know, so think about it this way. Turnaf is 15 miles wide at its widest point, about 33 miles from top to bottom. That imagine that each of the islands is is only like a couple hundred meters, maybe less than a kilometer wide on in, in anywhere. Right. Um, so it's just a lot of little islands that within there, there is a shallow lagoon that gets from that goes to about three or four meters deep. Yep. And it's full of seagrass, full of seagrass, patches of coral reef, um, and that entire lagoon, it's like looking at like a, you know, a field almost like you, but the big difference is that on the, there's a barrier reef, there's a reef surrounding the atoll. So a coral reef system. And then at about 50 meters on either side, it drops off. So this whole island, this whole atoll is like a little shallow platform and this shallow lagoon, it's like a pool in the middle of the sea, you know, so the dolphins and the animals that live there 
also live pretty isolated from the rest of the coast. They live on just this little, you know, pocket. You know, it's like a island, but it's their little lagoon in the middle of nowhere. So at the risk of um, at the risk of over anthropomorphizing, right? These dolphins have um, kind of their own culture because they're in this area, and they have their own strategies and they and, and their own you know kind of the way they act is according according to what we've discussed before very different than the way dolphins act in other areas. So maybe you could get into kind of what does their foraging day to day look like? You know, if I'm a dolphin and I'm, I'm hanging out with you and I'm seeing, you know, <laughs> you drive boats around and think, haha, that guy looks kind of goofy. <laughs> um, you know, what do I, what am I, uh, what am I doing that you're kind of, that you're observing? So I'll start with the species that we study is bottlenose dolphins and bottlenose dolphins live just about everywhere except for really cold Arctic or cold Antarctic areas, but they live everywhere else. So they live on the coasts of all the Caribbean tropics and subtropics and stuff. Depending on where they are, they might stay and rely on those resources more. So in coastal populations, animals tend to have live for longer periods of time and stay in certain areas and develop like certain reliable resources for food. Yep. So if you're an oceanic animal, you're going out there into the sea, you're following ocean currents and big schools of fish. If you're a coastal animal, you might find that there are reliable prey sources in certain habitats like seagrasses or coral reef. In places where dolphins form these kinds of behaviors where they adapt to local conditions over time, what you get is a lot of specializations. So the dolphins in Belize act differently from the dolphins in many other places, but they act more like dolphins in coastal tropical areas right. because those are the kinds of conditions that lead to them having very complex foraging behaviors that will stay for many years. So for example, some of the dolphins in the population that we study, they dig around in the seagrass when they're feeding yep. and they use their rostrums, that nose, the mouth, well, their mouth the, that sticks out at the front of their face. Which is not their nose because their nose right, is- Because their nose is the blowhole that went to the top <laughs> of the head. So they're- mouth their snout here they use that snout while making a sound and move it up and down in the seagrass so they go mm, 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 mm. i know dolphins have been reported doing something similar in a bunch of places but slightly differently a different sound a different way that they did it they only chased it in a they only did it a few times they chased other kinds of fish so it's not that these dolphins are so unique that they may be doing that's like something like just so spectacular, like spectacularly different from any other, it's that they develop a lot of variations of similar kinds. Right. J just like, just like human cultures where, exactly. you know, you, you see, you see that, you know, if you're, if you have human cultures on steps, there's a lot of similarities there. If you know, you're living on the steps versus if you're living in the plains, there's similar right. things that human cultures adapt. They're different in, you know, they, they have different in specific instantiations, but, mm -hmm. the, but their culture is kind of based around a core strategy that's useful to the environment. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, 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 Last week, the viewers got you know, really excited about a specific anatomical feature. Since we were talking about the fact that the mouth is here and the nose is the blowhole, mm -hmm. they got really excited about the melon mm -hmm. and the fact that it's called a melon. And you know, in fact, I had some people, some some viewers request an entire episode about the melon, and yeah. I don't think we can do a whole episode on the melon. Though maybe maybe there is enough to say. There might but be. Is there? Do you have any fun things to say about the melon? 
Well, or what even the melon is? <laughs> well, so the melon is really cool. It's this it's this organ that the just massive tissue that these that dolphins have developed that toothed whales have developed only. So it's important to know that not all whales have this. The toothed whales and dolphins do because it's an adaptation specifically for producing echolocation. It's like the sack of fatty fluids that can morph and change shape to allow dolphins and to other toothed whales to change their echolocation and to adjust that beam. And so whales and dolphins, the toothed kind, use sound to find things in their environment. And it's a very highly tuned mechanism of like creating a very narrow beam that projects out of the melon. And they move that melon to change the shape of the beam and change characteristics of the echolocation. It, it, it's for vocalization. Absolutely. Oh, I thought it was a receptor. It's actually a- The receptors are in the lower jaw and that's why their lower jaws are filled with a similar kind of lipid. So it's this fat, like they have a, like this fatty fluid similar in their lower jaw. The sound comes in through the lower jaw, but it goes out through the forehead because the, no the sounds are made in the blowhole, in the nose, project forward through there. So if you've ever seen a beluga whale, right. and you see that their foreheads move like that, that's because you can actually see the melon moving because they don't have as hard of a surface and uh, as hard and a firm surface like a bottlenose dolphin. You can see that melon moving and changing, like, and that is literally changing the beam that they're creating in front of them. That's actually ridiculous. I had no clue that this was the case. It is very ridiculous. And how fine of control do they have over that? Do they have like muscles that are like very super precise for controlling the melon? So <laughs> for toothed whales, this is the primary way they navigate, they hunt. So an animal that can't echolocate or hear as a as a whale or dolphin is 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 doomed because they have no way to find prey. So they, it is a very finely tuned mechanism where like if you do studies on captivity and dolphins where they've like trained them to like, you know, tell me when you find this object, you know, like you could basically like take a penny and just like chuck it from wherever you are and wherever it lands, the dolphin can go and find it in the sand. Um, and they don't do that visually. No, because they're using like they will use their eyes to, you know, assist, but essentially that sound like production and reception mechanism is so much more finely tuned than vision is underwater just because light doesn't travel very far underwater. So right. even if you have very good vision, you just cannot it see. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Sound travels further and it travels better and it, it allows them to <sighs> get a lot of, pro they're producing information and receiving the information that isn't there with light, you know, for their eyes. So it gives them the ability to create their own almost sensory world and to them, I mean, imagine you were a dolphin that they never sleep. They don't fully sleep. Right. So dolphins never fully sleep. They sleep with half their brain at a time. So they're awake out at night in the dark. Yep. How do you navigate in the dark, you know, without being able to see around you? Certain animals do it, but like echolocation is a really amazing way for them to be able to. While they're sleeping, are they vocalizing? So... It's hard to say. Um, there haven't been a ton of studies on the sleeping animals, honestly, because it's a little bit difficult to constrain. Often in captivity, you can see it a lot because the animals will just kind of like go like still. And, and because, uh, vision is, is, is controlled by the opposite hemisphere contralaterally. So 
their left eye, if you know they're sleeping, their left eye will be open facing down in the water and the right eye will be closed. And they'll do that and then they'll swap sometimes in the wild. I will see them just like stop moving, just rest at the surface for a little while and then take a breath and keep going. So I don't think they're vocalizing when they're doing that. It feels like almost like taking like a million little power naps a day. Mm. But I'm sure the safer the environment, the more that they can rest for very long periods of time. It's just that there are predators in the ocean right. and there's nowhere to hide. Dolphins so you, have predators? Dolphins have many predators. Ooh, I didn't know that. Yeah. What, so, what preys upon a dolphin? If I'm a dolphin, what do I have to worry about? Uh, sharks and other dolphins. Okay, so, let's let's start with sharks, but I want to hear about other dolphins too. So there are many species of sharks that prey upon dolphins and in many different places, like those are, you know, some of the primary things driving, you know, the coevolution of like predator and prey between different, you know, large species. The sh where the sharks are dictates a lot about what dolphins and other marine mammals do. Many species of large shark eat dolphins. Yep. They cannot like... Uh, catch often probably like a fully healthy adult dolphin. Um, but you can imagine that a lot of animals don't make it well in their early years when they're young and vulnerable right. and older years when they're vulnerable or sick or injured. Um, so probably not catching, you know, the healthiest dolphin that's being aware and, um, uh, but they do catch them pretty often. And we actually just, uh, have a paper coming out, um, from the, about work we did in the Western Caribbean where we, looked at catalogs of like a couple hundred, uh, I think it was like four or 500 dolphins from Mexico to Belize. And we only found evidence of like, like 15 or 16 times where we saw a shark bite on an animal. Um, that's a lot lower than other places where like predators, you know, where there are a lot more shark species. And so it has a big, it plays a big role in dolphin lives because the more predators there are, the more you have to think about where you go, the more right. you have to regulate your behavior and your actions to protect yourself and if you're a mother your calf and stuff so yeah they um they get eaten by sharks also other dolphins uh killer whales are a dolphin um no oh. they're the largest species of dolphin uh, but if you look at a killer whale and you look at it relative to other whales you're like yeah i see it it has that dolphin shape um they are the very large largest of the dolphins right and they eat many other species of dolphin there's also things like uh false killer whales that will eat dolphins um, I hear orcas are just ridiculously efficient. Uh, yeah, uh, they are because they are apex predators. They're also highly intelligent and um, live in really tight uh, social groups uh, that lead them to be able to cap like they capitalize on working together as a team. They pack hunt. Yeah. And some places they don't have to pack hunt, so they don't. So if they're just catching fish, they may not. But um Killer whales in Antarctica, for example, will swim up in a formation and create a wave to knock seals off of the ice. And they only like a certain kind of seal. So if they knock off other seals, they might leave it. And so they target a certain kind of seal. They create a wave. It washes them off. And then they'll go and grab it. And when they eat it, they'll do this very precise mechanism of like cutting the skin in certain ways um, and removing the meat. Like they are also, you know, Are they specialists. butchering? Are they like specifically butchering the animal in a, in a specific way? Yes. And dolphins are known to do that because imagine you're a dolphin and you're eating a huge fish. Yeah. You can't eat the head. Yeah. Just like we couldn't. 
Yep. So you have to figure out a way to handle your prey and manipulate it. Right. Animals have to do that too. Um, they can't always eat and digest the biggest parts. So killer whales have figured out, you know, very creative ways to do that. Um, often dolphins will just like leave the head of a big fish. They will break up the fish like against something and rip off the head and then swallow the rest. So there's something I discovered while uh, watching farm dogs growing up, which was that, um, which is that I figured out why they play tug of war. Why? So if you have, have you ever seen dogs eat a, eat a live chicken? No. Uh, not. Well, what they'll do is one will bite onto the chicken and, you know, and that, that snaps the chicken's neck or whatever, right? Yeah. But then it can't actually pull the chicken apart into pieces because it doesn't have anything to do that. So, you know, it might try to use its paw and, tear that isn't very efficient so what does another dog do the other dog bites onto another part of the chicken oh. and they tug of war the chicken until it's pulled apart i'd always wondered that about dogs i was like i wonder what the function is of this tugging because they really do love to play tug of war it's to tear meat apart Makes sense it's yeah. to you get on that side i get on this side. so people think that tug of war is this competitive game that dogs are playing but it's not at all it's a cooperative game that they're playing yeah that where you're simulating tearing apart a corpse like with that. your dog yeah. when you're playing tug of war. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> and so I, I was, I'm wondering like, you know, dolphins have the same challenge. They don't have hands. So right. where we can just take a, you know, piece of meat and rip it with our hand in our teeth. Why, what, you know, do dolphins when they're doing this, like, you know, dissection method, are they kind of team pulling on parts like are they are they doing this type of like cooperative dissection behavior unlikely that they're cooperatively dissecting anything um but uh we actually we published a note this year marine mammal science on rough tooth dolphins uh sharing food in mexico and so we saw this for the drone where the dolphins passed back and forth a large fish and one would grab it and rip and tear a piece off and turn and drop it right in front of the other one. And the other one grabbed it, ripped and tore a piece off, came, swam ahead, dropped it in front of another dolphin. And the other dolphin, like, it was like a snub almost. The dolphin just kept going. And it was like, it, it wasn't anthropomorphization, but it looked like, to me, like when a puppy brings a toy to you and you don't take it. And they're like, oh. so it dropped the fish in front of the other dolphin. It, the dolphin didn't take it. It picked it up again. They, and it passed it back and forth between the other two dolphins. And like they, it worked like that. They weren't tug of war, but they were, neither one of them could eat the entire piece. Right. So if I rip and tear at it and you rip and tear at it and I rip and tear at it, you steadily start to break down the meat until you can, each of you can have like a big chunk of it. Yeah. And that's what dolphins do sometimes, but it's very, that's actually pretty rare. Most of the time they just eat their whole thing. They eat the prey whole or they bite off or break off the piece that they can't eat. Right. Now those killer whales with the seals were doing precision stuff where they like use their teeth to basically bite a very careful like line through the fur and and actually excavate the meat itself. So wow. They don't have hands but they have enough cognitive flexibility to figure out how to do a lot of stuff with their teeth and mouth and body. Do they have tongues? They do. Yeah. Oh. They don't like stick out in the same way like ours. You probably wouldn't see it ever unless you like had a question, like unless you saw one in captivity and its mouth was open. Like it's rare that they would open their mouths like that. 
um, in the wild above water. Right. You would almost never see that in the wild. So you probably would never see a tongue unless you see a picture from an aquarium. Right, 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 right. Now, so, 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 so I was just wondering if they could like manipulate like food with their tongue to do the thing. Uh, no, but, um, they, the only thing I can think of similar to that on their body is their penis. They have a prehensile penis. They have a prehensile penis. Correct. Which is means it's kind of like a monkey's tail, um, <laughs> and it can grab onto things. And that's really important for them because sex for dolphins is kind of, uh, can be very brief, the act. Um, and also it's not always as uh, cooperative. And so <laughs> oh, in your, in, if you're in big groups or it's like a kind of orgiastic where like there's many dolphins and many females. So um, sex is rather quick for many species and it requires the dolphin to be able to hold on um, because they're all moving at the same time. They're all swimming. Even if they all stop at the same time, they're still moving in the water. So that prehensile penis is important to keep them in place. Uh, I've seen it in gray whales and a gray whale penis, they call a pink Floyd. Um, I think it was like six feet long and you could see it probing above the water, like a Nessie or something of the kind, like some Loch Ness monster. Um, <laughs> that was something else. There she blows. <laughs> yeah. And they were rolling on their back in like, you know, 15 feet deep water, like having a three way. Um, that's some whales, some whales are, you know, have no shame about that. Beautiful. Uh, now, now I also hear that dolphins. I hear on this word on the street is that uh, dolphins have a very like multi pitted. I'm not even sure what to say. Call it like many corridored vagina. Correct, similar to like ducks and stuff. Um, this is like associated with like like aggressively non consensual animals. Correct. Yeah. Um sex is not very consensual for some animals. Uh ducks, dolphins often, um, orangutans. Uh and it 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 leads to this like arms evolutionary race. arms race yeah. between males developing penises that can more effectively um be used to reproduce with females and females developing mechanisms of either tricking unwanted you know reproductive attempts by having like alternate pathways for um for the penis to go that doesn't lead to the reproductive parts so right. this is very obvious in ducks where like they have like a corkscrew penis and a corkscrew vagina that has different pits that will not allow you know, the penis to inseminate them. Right. Uh, and so um, I don't know a ton about that with dolphins, but like it is part of their um, sexual competition. Also in dolphins, uh, a lot of their, a lot of sexual competition ends up leading to different kinds of reproductive organs um, and different behavioral strategies. So even amongst like dolphins, there are a remarkably different, diverse amount of ways that animals reproduce. Right. Um, like the way that they do it. And so in these rough tooth dolphins, the same ones that were sharing food while they were sharing food, um, they were also having sex and, uh, the kind of sex they were having <laughs> made me laugh, um, hilarious, like, it, like hysterically, because what the male would do is he would swim under the female and he would line himself up vertically so that their genitals were aligned. So the female had her belly down and he had his belly up and then he would like, kind of like crossed like a T while, um, he was under her. He would open his mouth and kind of go like, ah, ah, and like open his mouth and and every single time they had this encounter, it happened the same way. 
and it was multiple different animals. So it made me start thinking like, is this actually the way that they, these, the species has sex? And it could be as specific as that because all the dolphin species are, were really different. And so like having like different sexual strategies amongst them is kind of makes a lot of sense because their bodies vary, their habitats vary. So they were having group sex. Yeah, but no, it was two. It was two. It was two, but they alternated. It was three of them having sex, but two of them having sex with one of them multiple times and they kind of alternated. Um, dolphins are very sexual, so not all of it is reproductive. Right. Um, they're, they're highly social. Um, touching and sexual behaviors are part of um, social bonding in these species. So yeah. they're having sex a lot in a way that like it's very much similar to grooming you know, in a lot of primates. Where they're like um, picking picking gnats off of the- Yeah, yeah or like behavior. preening in birds. Um, you know, uh, sexual behavior of dolphins is more similar to like uh, humans and uh, bonobos. Like, uh, are, are they, are, are pregnancies particularly, um, like, like are those, are gestation periods really long? Um, are, you know, how much, how much effort does a you know, how much basically how much of a hindrance is a is a calf to a uh, mama dolphin? So very much like people, um, dolphins raise their young. Yep, it is not that common in the animal world for animals to raise their young as long as dolphins. So a dolphin calf has to stay with its mother for about a minimum of a, of about eighteen months, but it can be up to five or six or seven years that they actually spend day by day very very close to their mother the first few years they'll stay like right next to her um, because they need to learn how to vocalize right what are the sounds to make who are the animals to associate with and how to feed right dolphins have to learn their strategy for feeding so they even pass if down that cultural strategy that was established you know kind of right early. and even if it's not something specialized even if it's like a more generic behavior like a lot of dolphins in the open sea many different species encircle fish and capture them like even if it's not something like you know what dolphins do in belize where they dig around and make a noise or in australia where they pick up a sponge and use it to like dig around on the bottom it's still something they have to learn they learn from their parents they learn from their mother specifically so if they don't learn from their mother they don't learn how to feed right so they spend a lot of years learning that and how to survive too uh, males also will kill dolphin calves potentially to drive females into reproduction uh so you know it's a it's a risky world being a dolphin calf you want to stick around mom is it possible then that um this this may this vagina maze is partially like a a way to facilitate um, more times that dolphins could like more times that dolphins could mate for social bonding purposes with less chances of the female getting pregnant. Like, do you see what I'm trying to say? Correct. That it's a yeah. natural form of contraception, right. so you can have pleasurable sex without incurring the cost of a calf at a time where maybe. You shouldn't incur, you know, just just like humans, maybe dolphins. Yeah. There are times where a mother should or should not be, right. be or become a mother, right? And we don't know a ton about that in a lot of populations of the wild because it's difficult to know when animals are pregnant or giving birth and such. But like typically in the wild, you know that like um, when an animal is born, it was for dolphins. It's about a twelve to thirteen month gestation period. Yep. So what we do know is that. 
they do exhibit pretty strong seasonal trends in like births that are likely aligned with like different environmental cycles that they're maybe aware of or their body is attuned to to capture prey and stuff. Got it. So like having babies in the wild, right? Like as a dolphin, you want to have ways to have sex without it leading to reproduction all the time because a female who has a calf also cannot take care of two calves safely. So right. she does not reproduce until that calf is independent. But does does have sex. Yeah. Fascinating. And like so, every dolphin has sex with every other dolphin because it is a very much like a bonding thing. So males on males, females on females, mothers on calves, calves on calves. Whoa. Mothers. It no is, way. It's more like just wait like Wait up. It's just wait, a, wait, wait, it's a wait, very wait. common, like it's how animals learn. Okay. Dolphin incest really common. Well, not incest with breeding. In actual like social bonding for these animals involves sexual interactions between you can't related just drop, animals. You dropped that so harshly. Hold on. It's you know calves. It's, calves. Yeah. Will have sex with their mothers to practice and learn how to have sex. They can mimic the behaviors, you know, they won't reproduce, but they will actually mimic all the same kinds of behaviors because that's how a dolphin learns um, to be a successful reproducing adult. Wild. Wild. That's mm -hmm. crazy to me. Mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, it's, it shows how our, uh, you know, how our morality is attuned by our biological context. Absolutely. So, what a what a whatever what a crazy thing to learn. I <laughs> I I thought I knew everything. I thought I knew a lot about dolphin sex already, but I I didn't I didn't know that. That's completely drop, new to me. Drop some knowledge on you. Um, holy crap. Um, well, I want to jump back maybe maybe a little bit when you said there's a difference between toothed and non-toothed right. uh, whales, and maybe you could. Say, I, I know, I, gosh, it's, I feel like it's such a weird topic to jump to, but it was the net, it was the next thing I had on the stack, just kind of like saved, totally. saved in the memory banks. So whales have not, not all of them have hard tooths, like teeth, like we like to think about tooths. Right. Correct. So the baleen whales evolved like a blue whale or a humpback whale or a gray whale. They evolved from toothed whales, yeah. but eventually they lost their teeth and they developed these long, um, keratin plates that are made of stuff kind of like your fingernails. Where do they, what do those come from evolutionarily? Like if they, if they, like, is there an analogous thing that could grow from my mouth? I, I think it, I think it does have some, like, there's some analogous stuff to like the part of like our dentition, but nothing that like, I think we see in uh, other mammals, unless you're filter feeders, because filter feeders losing their teeth, developed whole other mechanisms for straining prey that are does not like these these plates are soft plates so right i'm not actually sure you know if in our own faces they're like what it is that they would have converted to that like um a whale nose for example is basically the upper lip flipped back inside their head like the skin that composes the plug that jams up the hole of the baleen whale is made from what used to be their upper lip. And so I do some studies on nasal on the nasal anatomy of whales and you can see the same kind of tissue furled up in their nose is what evolutionarily used to be part of the lip of the terrestrial animal. So there's a lot of modifications happened 
in marine mammals that right. like, you know, we look at a dog or a polar bear or other things and we're like, we can see ourselves in it. They look fuzzy, but they have the same kind of shape and stuff. Right. Marine mammals underwent some of the most dramatic body changes right. of any mammals, which totally. is why they look so radically different, you know, than all the rest of us mammals. Which basically look like slight modifications on the shrew archetype. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So like they changed you know the game entirely with all their different adaptations but a lot of it had to do with just living at sea and figuring out ways to capture fish so blue whales which are the biggest animal to ever have lived capture prey by opening their gigantic mouths and sucking in water and and millions and millions of krill the lowest and the smallest organisms that you know they could possibly eat whereas like the smallest of the baleen whales the minke whales they eat larger fish you know, um, and they don't do that same kind of gigantic engulfment, but all the different strategies that whales and dolphins figured out for capturing prey is why they look so different and why they were able to occupy different niches and get so big. So big whales have strategies for eating a lot at once so they can get a lot of energy at once. So that let them grow in a time where the oceans was full of food. And so that's why whales are really, you get whales that are like so huge. Some of the biggest that have ever lived. So yeah, there, there's some, there's some, there's some like PBS Eons video or something mm -hmm. like that about why the blue, why the blue whale is so big, and it has some, some. Is there some positive feedback loop at play? This is a very fun math topic, right? Because uh, you know, whenever you see something that just is orders of magnitude bigger mm -hmm. or smaller than what you're used to, it's a great time as a mathematician to think about. Um, and I know you've done some ecological math mathematics yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a great place to look for feedback loops. It's like if you see something that got out of control, big, like a blue whale, then you, you there is guaranteed pretty much to be a feedback loop at play. And you just have to figure out what that feedback loop is. So there's a really interesting paper that came out. I think it was last year, Goldbogging et al. 2020. Um, and they, they looked at uh, – foraging um and energy and like related to energetics and the evolution of like these different feeding types across all the a bunch of different toothed and baleen whales using tags to look at you know how they were capturing food and how much energy they were expending relative to what they're taking in and basically baleen whales exploited a they went a totally different trajectory than the tooth whales tooth whales capitalized on capturing single items of prey and there's a cap to how much energy they can get from that the largest of which the the sperm whales eat primarily squid um so it there was a cap on how big they could get whereas like the baleen whales develop this way of opening their mouths and engulfing water and that feedback loop you're talking about part of it is that like it takes so much energy to lunge forward and open your mouth and engulf an enormous amount of water that like there is a threshold beyond which like they need to eat a certain amount to, to actually be able to expend that energy right. to capture their prey. And that energy doesn't scale as fast as the nutrients you get by getting a bigger mouth. Right. And so that's why blue whales are like blue whales, as far as we know, are the biggest animal that have ever lived, but also may represent the maximal body size for a living creature based on the fact that there is no way for them to take in more energy coming in than they would have to expend capturing it. Right. So maybe they 
nothing can be bigger than a blue whale in the ocean. And and right, right, because there has to be something limiting. There has to be something limiting the um the the a feedback loop runs until it can't run anymore. Mm-hmm. And so if this is indeed an example of a feedback loop, you would expect it to end at the absolute limit of what is possible. Right. So that would be that would be the argument, right? Something like that. Yeah. Very cool. So then what are the closest relatives of these animals, um, uh, of the whales and the cetaceans? Um, which cetaceans are, I'm saying this right? Cetaceans right. the are the cetaceans. dolphins? Yeah, the whales and dolphins. Got it. And those are that whole class are called cetaceans, whales and dolphins together? Right. Okay. The whales and dolphins are the cetaceans. Uh, the different orders are, are the um, odontocetes, which are the toothed whales. Yep. And mysticetes, which are the baleen whales. Got it. And those are the two big categories. So baleen whales are all have plates and all the odontocetes have teeth. So it, where, what is their, what does, who decided to go back in the ocean? So <laughs> which know, one of our common ancestors, mammal common ancestors decided that was a good idea? A bunch of them actually. So, you know, marine mammals are not only the cetaceans, there are the pinnipeds, the seals and sea lions, right, right. the walruses. Um, there are the sirenians, the manatees, the dugongs, um, and the extinct stellar sea cow. Uh, and oh, is that recent? No, that was in the late 1800s. Okay. Um, I could talk about that, you know, at length, but it was a gigantic manatee that was basically hunted to extinction in 30 years by Russian fur traders when they went to the Chuchki Sea and found these animals that um, no one had ever encountered before. And they live in the Arctic. So were they furry? No, they weren't. Um, They probably were not as Probably not furry because manatees aren't furry. Manatees don't have hair. They likely didn't have much hair or they, fur at all. What did fur traders want with them? Blubber? otters they were going for and they were eating the, sire- the, the stellar sea cow for food. Oh, God. Yeah. Brutal. But so there's a lot of different. So otters, polar bears, they're all marine mammals. All these things went back into the sea, but like their ancestors went back at different times. So whales ancestors enter the sea like i think 65 million years ago or so and they re-enter the sea from being a terrestrial animal and then over the course of you know the last 65 million years they have evolved into you know i think i forget how many species of cetaceans there are 60 to 70 something but like there are you know um, there are many different radiations that led to lots of different you know kinds of them but then also the pinnipeds the seals and sea lions entered at a different time um, the polar bears became marine at different times. Polar uh, bear, you, you consider polar bears marine animals? They are, they're marine mammals. Correct. Oh, fascinating. Because they spend their entire life and depend on the sea. They don't, you know, they do go on land technically, but um, their life is dependent on ocean food. Yep. Ocean, right. Walruses and seals and whatnot. Yeah, whereas like manatees sometimes don't get looped into the marine mammal as much it, because they actually live in freshwater habitats and sometimes don't depend on the sea at all. Well, they are marine mammals, but like they, you know, they're less marine dependent than most other things. Like there are freshwater stuff that re-entered rivers and stuff. So there are river dolphins that live in freshwater because 10 million years ago and in different places, some dolphins entered rivers and became adapted to freshwaters. So you've got a whole different variety in marine mammals. Is there likely a good example of a mammal that's kind of in the middle of transitioning to being more 
Uh, like, is there, if we took a snapshot at this point in time, is there something that's like on its way to being much more like stereotypically marine, like the dolphin? Amphibious creatures. So, like, the you asked what was the closest relative to marine, uh, to whales and dolphins? Hippopotamuses. Hippopotamus. So, hippopotamuses are the closest relative to whales and dolphins, and they are, you know, amphibious. They're right. semi aquatic. They can, you know, they live partly on land, but depend on water as well. Um, they do exhibit what looks kind of like, transitional where like they have you know ways to close their nostrils and open them but not like as dramatic as whales you know they live underwater and can hold their breath for a while but not as dramatic as most marine mammals and then they don't you know breed and spend all their time in the water so they're not technically you know completely dependent on it but you know they look similar but things like imagine like an otter you know in you know, if an otter needed to adapt in different ways in another 20 or 30 million years, maybe they wouldn't, you know, maybe they would lose their arms if there was another thing to prey right. upon that didn't require like them Hands. to crush and do stuff. So a lot of it just depends on the evolutionary trajectory. Dolphins didn't lose their arms because, you know, arms are useless in the sea. It's just that the ancestors of dolphins found using their mouths and, you know, chasing animals and grabbing them and eating them, you know, without arms and legs, a lot more efficient. Yep. And so they lost their legs and lost their arms and still survive, you know, well to this day, whereas polar bears need their hands to make things happen. So it really just depends on, you know, at what point in time we're looking at the evolutionary scale of when these animals are now at this stage, you know, they look, all the marine mammals look really different. Right, 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 right. So you want to jump into uh, talking about these, uh, the, it sounds like there's something hot off the presses right now in Manatee World. Is this something that you're allowed to talk about or is it uh, unpublished and therefore? Um, oh, this one, this one, no, I can't talk about. Oh, fun. Good. Well, I'm going to keep that in anyway because I think it's fun. <laughs> I think it's fun for the viewers at home to know that there's hot off the presses manatee news that you're not allowed to talk about. There's secret manatee news out there. Secret manatee news. Well, I mean, there's a lot of secret manatee news all the time uh, because manatees are not like, are not as well studied as a lot of marine mammals. So right. a lot of the studies we're doing on their acoustics, um, on their body condition, uh, on on the behavior, um, they're bringing like new insights because they, these animals just haven't been well understood before. So right. we're learning all sorts of stuff about them. Like they may have different ecotypes where different body types, depending on, you know, the environmental conditions they live in. Like calves may make different calls and different sounds than mothers that change over time based on their body size and how they grow. Like there's a lot of stuff to learn about these animals. It's just, you know, surprisingly little known because it's hard to study them. Right. Now this may be a good time to get into the conservation side of these things. Yeah. So um, I, 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 here on solutions, we talk about the four F's of problem solving. First one is finding a problem worth solving. Second is framing a problem such that it appears solvable. Third is figuring out a solution to a problem. And fourth is funding your solution to that problem, which sometimes permutes. Sometimes the funding comes first before figuring out the solution. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, so those things can switch in position sometimes. And I guess um, one thing is like, what are some of the big problems? What problems have you found that are that are you know really important in the world of ocean mammal conservation? Well, so in studying marine megafauna and being like a marine like a conservationist, at the forefront of most of our issues are issues of 
animals being impacted by human activity. Yep. Uh, so there is nowhere in the world that you can find, as far as I know, that humans haven't left a footprint. Yep. Um, you know, the beaches where I work in Belize, garbage washes up from the open sea all day, every day, and cakes the islands. So it's hard to you know, distance yourself from that. Um, most of our work in, I'd say, the marine mammal world is driven by the immediate need to protect populations from large and emerging and growing threats without information on their baseline conditions. So this concept that comes up a lot in conservation of shifting baseline, you know, we don't know what the baseline was for these animals often right. because we weren't around to document it a hundred years ago or 200 years ago or 50 years ago before we started developing a bunch of stuff. So we can almost guarantee that um, most marine mammals and most animals and living in, in close proximity with people are impacted by them. Yep. And for marine mammals, there's not that many of them. They tend to live in small populations um, and they're highly affected by things we do. So a lot of the problems that I'd say we try to solve in the marine conservation world, while they're, you know, deep, like deeply scientific nature, the, the questions, you know, oftentimes lend themselves to, you know, producing results that we can use to make actionable change or decisions that lead to protecting the animals and, you know, reducing risks for them. So for example, some studies I'm working on with a big group of international colleagues right now is developing the ability to use drones to do uh, photogrammetry of manatees to measure their body size um, so that we can do studies of their populations in the wild and know how well they're doing. And we're doing this by using information that was uh, that was generated from captures over many different years from many different organizations across the range of the species and then using tools like drones to build on that. And now we can go into the wild and say, okay, we know what the body condition should be like for these manatees if they're healthy or not. Now I can go into the wild and when I study a new population, like um, let's say in Puerto Rico where some of our colleagues work and we're planning on starting some new studies, we want to know, is this population doing okay? So I can take my new tool with something that we recently innovated and go and say like, these manatees are of this size, everyone's looking chunky and healthy or everyone is looking a little skinny or maybe they're just skinnier here, but Without that information, we cannot say things about how their population is doing. Right. Studying animals in the wild is so difficult that I'd say a lot of the work needs to be geared towards just understanding basic things about their lives to understand if they're impacted by the other things that make less obvious impacts. So going with the four F's paradigm here, right. if if finding the problem is human impacts on on marine mammal populations, then framing the problem is metrics. Mm -hmm. It's getting drones out there to do photogrammetry, to figure out what do these, what, what are the size of these populations? Where are they, the, you know, where are they, you know, where are the problem areas? Because mm -hmm. you can't address, you know, you need to be able to find and diagnose the problem first. And right. then you can say, oh, okay, it's this area that's having the biggest issues. Now we can do a detailed investigation of that area to find the perhaps hidden, and a lot of the time it's the counterintuitive things that are leading to some decline in the population there, um, often having to do with other less charismatic species. Yeah. Um, 
and then uh, find finally, um, you know, so fig- then you can figure out the solution from there once you have the metrics to frame the problem. Is that do you think that's a fair um, shoehorning of this into the paradigm that I try to use here on the podcast? Absolutely, yes. And you know, if you know, tad on that, if the problem, like if the solution to the problem doesn't to the conservation problem doesn't exist, then part of our job is trying to understand that basic science a little bit better so that we can start to get towards that solution. So some of our studies, we can go in and just start studying the animals right away because we know, for example, that there's a small population um, like the vaquita. The vaquita lives in the Gulf of California and it's endemic to this area. Vaquita is in like small cow? Yes. <laughs> and there are only about- But not actually a cow. It's a no, it's just the name of it, but it's it. a, it's the smallest species of dolphin. And yeah. they're about this big, and there's only about 30 of them left. And they only live in that one area. And so in terms of conservation, like they are the biggest priority globally for protecting a species before it goes extinct um, because they live in this area and they're so endemic that their populations have been wrecked by bycatch from fishing for other fish species. Mm. But if you're talking bottlenose dolphins, they live all around the world. So some of the metrics or or the ways you want to approach them, maybe you need a regional, you need like here in New York and on the East coast of the U S we work with everyone down from Florida and through the Caribbean to build up catalogs and compare information. So sometimes the scale of the problem is global or huge regional scale, which requires regional collaboration at that scale. But if you're talking about protecting like things that are endemic to one little area, I mean, it probably requires that collaboration too, but your approach might be different. So I have some studies that have dozens of collaborators from countries all around the world who did work in those countries in lots of different places and other studies that took place in just one area. Um, right. But it and really so depends the on the scope of the collaboration is often proportional to the range of the animal. Exactly. And how much you need to actually be able to like piece together what's happening in a single population. So all humpback whale researchers want to know what's happening when the humpback whale they study in Alaska, for example, travels to Hawaii. (laughs) That takes going to Hawaii or having collaborators in Hawaii ready there to collect data. And what you have is all around the world now, all lots and lots of thousands of people who study humpback whales put together catalogs, they publish them online, they have automated neural, they have neural networks they use to track and ID the fins out of tens of thousands of photos to enable it. But to study, to to understand humpback whale conservation, you need to ID humpback whales all around the world from different populations from across the world. So we published a note um, a couple of years ago on a whale that we found in Nicaragua that we ID'd in Antarctica. And it was not known that this whale population would go to Nicaragua, um, but we were able to find it because my friend took a picture on a survey one day and somebody took a picture on a boat in Antarctica one day and they put it on Happy Whale on the same website and it matched. Happy Whale? Yeah, Happy Whale. It's a really cool website actually. So if you ever go whale watching um, and you can get pictures, you can upload your pictures. And if you get good pictures of the flukes or the tails of whales, and that's what you use to ID them because the tails of whales often have enough scarring that you can say like, oh, that's Bob, that's John, that's Pablo, the whale. That's how we study. Most marine mammals are studied this way where like we know who the individual is. So if any of you are sitting on some whale pictures, please upload those to happywhale.com. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually, it's super cool because Happy Whale, what they do is they have a team of people who 
will go through and verify and they have some like auto put that in the comments below by the way go yeah. com comments below i mean put happy whales so if you have you know so, so we'll it was put that in it was created by some of our colleagues um his name is uh, ted cheeseman and, and his collaborators um and we worked with him on this paper and um but their work is amazing like they built up this website where they'll take in tens of thousands of photos of whales from different places around the world maybe, maybe more probably more um and they have automated ways to go through and match them to previous catalogs that go back like 50 years in some places, uh, but it enables them, you know, to do really big studies and track things over huge like ocean basins. Uh, but what's cool is like if you go on a whale watch, you take a picture, you can upload it to Happy Whale. And if it is matched, they will then send you updates about that whale. So I've taken pictures of whales like when I was in Mexico, not in my field site, just a place where I was going whale watching and I took some pictures of humpback whales. And I still to this day get notifications about this whale named Two-Face who like goes back and forth between Mexico um, and I think California. And, and you know, I see every couple of years that she gets picked up again uh, by a whale watcher in California or wow. a whale watcher in Mexico. Like, that's, that's so cool. And that's like, you that's, get this like kind of weirdly personal relationship with some, with some whale that is out there right now living their ocean life. And, you know, to a lot of scientists who don't study big animals um, that you have to track individually, it might sound like, you know, anthropomorphizing them definitely in a way you would not necessarily do with laboratory animals. But like these animals are long lived. Right. They have, you know, personalities, identities. Most animals do. But with these long lived animals, you learn who they are over many years and you track them and their calves and their babies. And, and how as humans babies. could we not at some level have some sort of emotional connection to that? I mean, they are like very similar to us in so many ways and, you know, naming them, honestly, the naming convention in biology, a lot of it was pushed by a lot of it would change with Jane Goodall, because when you started tracking these long live animals over time, it felt really intuitive to give them names. And, you know, to this day, we name our animals because Soften, for example, in my population that I study in Belize, she's probably 32 now. Um, we ID'd her in 1991. Wow. And so I know that animal by its code, you know, BZTA025. Uh, but her name is, is Soften. Uh, and, you know, it's because her fin looks like a saw and it's not her name to her. Uh, but it is, you know, it's kind of natural. And it's it's funny how it happens. Like you end up giving them names without even realizing it. you end up saying they're male or female without thinking about it. Um, there's a lot of things your mind glom onto these long live animals because you see so many things in them that you see in us, you know, do, do dolphins have names for themselves? That's a really interesting question. So probably most, you know, dolphins have some kind of name for themselves. Um, uh, dolphins produce what's known as a, as a signature whistle. And most dolphins in most bottlenose dolphins, the one that's been really well studied, because they've been kept in aquariums and because they they do well in aquariums. A lot of dolphin species don't. So bottlenose dolphins have these signature whistles, which is basically a whistle that they produce that is highly stereotyped and they make it when they're alone. And what lots of studies in the wild have shown is that they will use this as a form of, you know, identity to identify each other. So if I'm Eric, my whistle might be and every time I swim up and I want to make that was the R2D2, uh, by the way, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so it can be something like that. It's a stereotype way. So it wouldn't like dolphins whistle to communicate. There's lots of whistles. Right. They might sound like or or 
they can be in lots of different whistles, but there is one that ends up being funky and like unique. And it is their stereotyped signature whistle. So if you're a mother- Gosh, is it a prerequisite to be in this lab to make cool dolphin sounds? Because I, I, I don't have do any. I think so. Yeah. You and Marcelo now, twice at, two guests in a row, we get awesome dolphin noises. This is great. It took me a long time to like perfect them, but I learned from starlings actually. So the starlings in New York City, the little invasive ones. Oh yeah. They make amazing sounds. And growing up, my mom would mimic these a lot. And much like a dolphin, I learned to make my sounds from my mother who learned to make her sounds uh, from her father. So I learned to whistle very young and I would mimic the birds. So the birds are out here and sound like little chainsaws, you know? Right. And there's um, a little, there's a little rumbling there on the, on the background. You're also vibrating. Took me a while to learn to do that. You're, rumble, you're, you're whistling and vibrating your vocal cords. At the yeah, same it's like time. humming, humming whistle. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, take some control. That's what dolphins can do too. Dolphins can make multiple different sounds at once. Right. So they make these click sounds, which are for echolocation. They make the for communicating where they are, um, for keeping in contact. I mean, think about your underwater. You can't see very far, but there's predators and stuff. You got to stay in contact. You got to find each other. Sound is a really effective way to do that. Right. And if you can identify each other from far away, even better. Gosh, we have we have we're, we're we're running tight on time, but I have like a few rapid fire, maybe rapid fire things here. Sounds good. Um, so, because I'm I'm, I'm just, uh, so okay. Uh, one is you were telling me a while back that they, it seems like they have accents in different regions. Yeah, as in as in sometimes they you know they go up at the end of the whistle and down at the end of the whistle in different areas. Can you comment on that real quick? So we don't know an enormous amount with like the bottlenose dolphins, but. There are differences in the way that animals use sound. So in some places they just use different sounds than in other areas, but I'll use killer whales as an example because they are the most extreme of it. Yep. Killer whales have dialects that are different in different populations and a population of killer whales that lives here in the deep ocean versus the population of killer whales that lives coastally make different sounds to the point where they're not likely able to interpret what that other one sound is because they were not exposed to it. Wow. That makes that sense. Degree. Regional separation and evolution of evolution works, not just in biology, but in anything that has genetic material. And this is, I think, an important point, right? Yeah. Is that anything that gets passed down with mutation where one to one generation, it gets a little bit modified because you, if you've ever played a game of telephone, you know that it's not, it, transmission is never perfect. So, and it's somewhat random. And so anytime you have transmission and mutation over generations, and then you have regional separation, yep. you're going to get, you're going to get speciation. Yeah. This is like just how speciation happens. And it even happens, languages in a way can be thought of as species. And so, and so if you have two separated, you know, populations and they have some sort of language or some sort of communicatory device, then they're going to have speciation of that communicatory device. And you see that a lot in, you know, in killer whales, like, you know, speaking of solutions, killer whales are great at finding solutions to lots of their problems, you know, to the point where some of them only eat marine mammals and certain kinds of marine mammals. Some of them only eat fish. So, but they are highly adaptable. So much like us, you know, if they are moving into a new territory, they may be able to learn and adapt to 
feed on different things. They definitely do, you know, over generations, they, you know, develop totally different ways. But to feed. someone has to be that first crazy person to, to right. go and eat the new thing. Yeah. Just like humans. So you, someone first has to say, okay, I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to eat these berries over here. And you know, correct. that could work out well. It could work out probably for just like us. Uh, it's the, in a lot of marine mammals, the, the, you know, a lot of whales and dolphins, the females have like a smaller range and they stay together more, but like the males go out Some and run. risky male. Who <laughs> risky males go out and take risks and are seeding new populations. Yeah. So you do need like risky males and a lot of, you know, right. mammals to go and. This is the classic kind of uh, males are expendable and females are not. Yeah, uh, lesson in biology where <laughs> males you can you can throw away ninety nine percent of them and keep one and your species can survive. But <laughs> well, that's why killer whales have uh, grandmothers who are post reproductive and oh, are they still, have They go through menopause, correct? And they are still highly important to the group, right? Whereas and probably the males are not. <laughs> the, right. And this is an idea of what menopause is, right? Menopause is roughly this transit social transition where um where a female goes to becoming still remaining useful as a information receptacle. Correct. Um right. in order to pass down the informational genetic material yeah. that exists at, in terms of, you know, oral history um yeah. and that and, and and lessons and things like that. So like the idea that like postmenopausal females are um, and certain species are important is like it's a that's like a signature of a highly cognitive animal, right? And not only not a highly like a, a highly cognitive mammal because right. like things like the octopus we have in the lab don't. right now are cognitively complex, but they don't have like you know in an elephant or a killer whale you can say that grandma is important. The right. same way grandmas are important for us. Right. They carry knowledge. They know how to cook the things. They taught your mother how to cook the things. They taught your parents how to cook the things. Right. They're important. Or an octopus, there's no grandma. But the no cognitive grandma. complexity is, you know, astounding. And knowing how that happened is like, you know, very different. But like a long-lived mammal, yeah, they've got like grandmas, you know, who were there. Um, but right. not all of them, you know? Like, so a lot of ways to do it. Like the killer whales are the extreme, you know? Not all whales have grandmas. So we're going to jump. I got two more questions for us and sure. then we'll take it out. So first question is um, on the on the method of funding. Can you talk about this idea of, um, for conservation, uh, these charismatic animals are really important for funding. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, because that's the final F. We had to hit the funding F. So and where do you guys get your funding and why are charismatic animals so important for getting that funding? So for conservation work, I would say conservation. Yeah. Is often uh, a patchwork of a lot of different funding and it depends on where you are. So, you know, the same way funding is different in developed countries and, and, you know, in developing countries like uh, resources for marine mammal protection are limited in a lot of places yep. because of Nixon and the Marine Mammal Protection Act of the United States. We have, it is obligatory for us to study and protect the animals. So the government invests an enormous amount in it. In other countries, it is not necessarily. And so the money doesn't come from the government necessarily. Where I work in a bunch of places in Mexico and Belize, um, conservation comes, you know, it's a, it's a mix of protected areas and management from like government and local rangers and stuff. And then funding that we get from grant giving organizations, usually in the United States or Europe. And then a patchwork of other things like doing citizen science stuff, like bringing people out to take trips to do 
research and show them, you know, the nature and have them assist. So a lot of my work was supported in the past by me leading eco tour trips where I brought groups of citizens out to study and, you know, help me study and help us study. Volunteerism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that has been a huge support for an enormous amount of research in a lot of places because going out on a boat for six or seven hours a day to find marine mammals costs a couple hundred dollars. Yep. Do that every day or for months and years like it does to, to study these animals. You're talking about projects that end up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars to get baseline information on a population. Who, if, if someone wanted to be a volunteerist and actually genuinely help, yeah. um, who would, who, where would they go? So... Um, the organizations I work for, like uh, Oceanic Society, are cool. conservation, you know, like ecotourism groups that like make a point to do uh, trips to places that are sustainable, that have been like investigated by, you know, by our people who have spent a lot of time out in the world. Um, and then also trying to facilitate research while there. So my research started because our research station in Belize was supported by these trips. And our 20 plus years of data came from 20 plus years of people coming, you know, throughout the year for once a week to do surveys on these dolphins. So in a lot of places, that is, you know, a huge boon. But in, but to be honest, funding is really hard in marine mammals, um, charismatic marine megafauna, you know. Can you define charismatic real quick? So, Just real so, quick. Yeah. So like, you know, big, beautiful, exciting things like, like a manatee or a whale or dolphin that people get excited about, you know, not for any more valid reason than they shouldn't get excited about a spider, but because they look big and they're exciting and because right. we attach stuff to them, they like are important symbols for nature. And, and so because we use to them. Protect dolphins. You yeah. have to protect the entire ecosystem. Correct. And it's a lot sexier to say, fun, you know, save the dolphins than it is to save the by bi some random bivalve clam somewhere. Correct. So that's, it's you know. really important to protect the ecosystem and habitat, you know, but if we don't have a way to appeal to people, there's no way to do that. So protecting the whales means protecting all of the little organisms beneath them because that habitat needs to be preserved. But people can attach to a whale. So final two things. If someone if someone wanted to be get involved, um, it, would these volunteerist things be a good way to start to get on a career to do similar things to what you do? So uh, for a career in marine mammal science, so I'm actually um, on the board for the Society for Marine Mammalogy. And as a student member, what I do is I advocate for um, marine mammal students around the world. And in order to get into the field, we have a job board on our website, on uh, the Marine Mammal, the Society for Marine Mammalogy website. Great. I'll post all these links, by the way. Yeah, there's uh, there's a listserv um, called MarMam, which is basically all marine mammal people's listserv for things. Um, and I would say volunteering and getting involved in research is, you know, volunteering and starting an internship and stuff is basically how you get started in you know, a lot of science. You can do it young, right? You can do it starting young. Absolutely. And I think, you if know. If you're 14, 16, could you already start getting involved in these types of things? Yeah, it just depends on where it is and what like level. So if you want to volunteer in certain places, you need to be like 
18 just for logistical reasons. Got but it. so if you're in your local college area, though, and you're you're looking to absolutely and you start could, volunteering early. I mean, I would start by just looking around for what is around what is the closest thing with marine mammals. You know, you be might be surprised that in New York City there are a lot of marine mammals here. Right. And so, like, but it would be like what organizations are are doing that. Well, labs exist. There's a lot of them. So great. You know, if students want to find that they should, you know, find where they can volunteer and work at and, you know, and be willing to spend time learning, you know, about the animals and the environment that they need to understand. Beautiful. Well, I think that wraps it. And thank you so much uh, for coming out and being willing to join me on this kind of initial thrust of uh, launching this podcast. I really appreciate you being my second guest here. Um, and uh, I'm going to now turn to the camera and do the thing where I say, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Click the notification button. Um, and if you're listening to this on you know, uh, Spotify or some other podcast platform, um, also, feel free to go check out the YouTube version. You can look at our beautiful faces uh, and the excitement and all the facial reactions and all the hands talking that we're doing. Yes, the gesticulation. <laughs> um, and uh, thank you very much for supporting the podcast. Once again, please like, share, um, share uh, subscribe, comment. Commenting is good for the algorithm and the rest of it all. So um, without further ado, uh, I will sign off here. And thank you very much for spending uh, the last hour or so with us here. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>